0: This episode was brought to you by The Social Fishing Membership, Australia's fastest-growing freshwater platform, giving you the resources to catch more fish. Welcome to The Social Fishing Podcast. My name is Reese Creed. I'm a passionate angler, and I want to share as much as I can about the sport we all love. On this podcast, we speak to incredible anglers, sharing a wealth of priceless knowledge, all to help you reach your fishing dreams. Thanks for joining us today. Now, let's begin. Hey, guys. Now, don't forget GoFishNegambi is only a month away. It is from the 10th to the 13th of February. It is going to be exciting, and it is a cracker of an event. If you have never been, you have to go to GoFishNegambi, not only because it's an awesome festival and awesome fishing competition, but because you could have the chance at winning yourself $80,000 cash for catching the biggest Murray Cobb. But don't forget, there are so many other cash and prizes to give away. So that is Go Fish, Negambi. It is Australia's premier freshwater fishing competition. There is so much on, so much to do, whether you're a keen fisher, whether you're just fishing with a family, there's so many different opportunities. There's even prizes for carp as well. It is a great event. Make sure you get there. There are still tickets left to enter. Go Fish, Negambi, the 10th to the 13th of February. It has been pulled forward a little bit this year to coincide with the awesome fishing in the summertime at Negambi Lakes. I'll be there, guys, and I'd be keen to see you there as well. So, if you want to register and if you want to be a part of it, jump on the socials, check out GoFishNagambi or go to GoFishNagambi.com.au. G'day, g'day and welcome back to another episode of the Social Fishing Podcast. This is episode 60 and if you've been following on and listening to the last few, you remember in the last episode I said we would have on a very special guest and special it was. I was lucky enough for the second time to sit down with Starlow and have a real good chat and in this one, we didn't so much talk about species Based stuff like we did in the first one. We talked about some really interesting topics and we just let the discussion flow wherever it went. And the main topic in this one with Starlo is all about how the fishing industry has changed over The 45, 50 years that Starlow has been fishing for. It's incredible to be able to talk to someone with a lifetime and a true lifetime of knowledge. I myself have been fishing, dedicated fishing for about 10, 12, 14 years, uh, but that compares nothing to that of what Steve Starling has done in his 45, 50 years fishing for a range of saltwater and freshwater fish. The value of knowledge that Steve has is priceless just based on his experience experiences and time, creating content, being on the water. And I really enjoyed the chat and I really want to thank him again for his time to sit down and have a chat with me. Not only to thank him for his time, but to also thank him for sharing not only on this platform in this one short episode, but throughout everything he has done, he needs a round of applause for the amount of information he has shared through books, through videos, through TV programs, YouTube content, his own online content, social media. It is completely endless how much he has shared. And I want to say a big thank you on behalf of everyone who has consumed a piece of his content Thank you for your effort, Steve. You've done a great job. And I can't wait, hopefully, in the future to catch up with him again because there is so much valuable information there and you could talk over and over and over. But in this one, we talked about the industry, how it has changed, the developments, and there's a bunch of other cool stuff right the way through. And you know that Steve has an incredible amount of experience just by talking to him and a couple of the things that he brings up. I love sitting down and recording these podcasts because I myself learned something from every single chat i feel like i'm growing and i hope that you guys get a lot out of them as well so that is it from me guys without further ado let's jump in and talk with the legendary the one and only starlo Welcome back to the episode, guys. I am pumped for this one. I've been excited for a couple of months now. Starlo, thanks for having another chat with me, mate. Welcome to another episode. And would you believe it has been nearly two and a half years since the boat show in Sydney when we recorded that first episode? It's just crazy how quick time goes.
1: Yeah, well, it's been a been a pretty crazy two years, hasn't it, with COVID and everything else? I mean, there hasn't been another boat show uh, or a tackle show, or anything else. Since then, it's been a very strange couple of years.
0: Yeah, does it feel weird for you to not be going to Sydney and Brisbane, and because you did it, you've been doing it every year for quite some time, or has, have you been on and off doing them?
1: Yeah, no, I, I've done it near. I've done it pretty much every year for about 25 years. So it does feel strange not to go to at least two or three boat shows and a couple of four-wheel drive shows and the tackle show. Uh, every every year. And now, you know, we've just had two years with, with none of them at all. So it is
0: a little bit weird. <laughs> How did you go through lockdown? Because you're on the South Coast.
1: Yeah, look, the, the initial one was um, really interesting. We made a decision uh, to really sort of shut down and I didn't fish for five weeks, which is I think the longest i haven 't fished since I was about seven years old, and I did go a bit stir crazy uh, and then, when things started to lift a bit, this was way back in the in the uh, sort of april april may period of um, yeah. two thousand and twenty and then, when we were sort of able to go fishing again, i I stayed very much to my local area and local fishing. And that's been a bit of a pattern since then. I've only had one trip away in the last really? two years, as far as flying anyway, you know. And that was up to Mackay in Queensland to compete in the in the World uh, Sooty Grunter Championships, which, which was fantastic. And I managed to sort of sandwich that in between... Lockdowns and isolation and travel restrictions and everything else. So that was great, but that's the only time I've been on a plane in the last two and a half years. All my other fishing has been either you know within a day's drive of home or at most sort of a couple of days away. So yeah, it's a, it's really made me reevaluate my own fishing, I guess. And I've got to say, I've I've actually really enjoyed it. I, I got to spend two winters. Uh, here at home normally I try and get away for a couple of trips during winter because it does get pretty cold down here and the fishing can shut down a bit but having to spend two winters at home made me reevaluate all that and I ended up having exceptionally good fishing through through both the winter periods
0: uh, on my local saltwater scene so it's been a bit of a revelation so you've obviously you've learned a bit through that time as well you're saying like if you those winters would have been just as good every other year or you just sort of had to learn how to fish a different way because you actually spent so much time at home yeah
1: I think both I, you know I'm sure that those winters were just as good any other year but I yep. sort of got away from the weather and everything and went to exotic locations up north or um, you know to chase um, tropical fish and, and having to stay home um, I just came to appreciate it a lot more I, I, I've got to say I had two of the best years of, of brim fishing that I've ever had, particularly on the fly. I did a lot of uh, chasing big black brim on fly and got some absolute stonkers and found some new areas and started tying my own flies for them and everything. And, yeah, so it's been, it's been really, really good. I'm, I'm
0: sort of glad it happened in a way. So where you're based right, would you, could you see yourself living anywhere else? and I know obviously your decision would be fishing-based, I'd imagine mine is, but would you, could you picture yourself anywhere else or you're quite content to spend the rest of your life or however long where you are based on the fishing that surrounds you?
1: Yeah, it's something I think about quite a bit and and my wife Jo actually, we had that discussion just recently, you know, where do we see ourselves being in five or ten years or whatever and we both agreed that this part of the world has got a lot going for it. I mean, we're only a couple of hours from trout fishing. We've got bass fishing on our doorstep. We've got great brim and flathead and whiting and uh, all that kind of stuff. We've got offshore fishing. So it is a pretty good part of the world. Uh, the the winters can be a little bit cold for that sort of six-week period from yep. uh, about early june to about you know the end of july sort of thing it can be fairly fairly cold and dismal but um i really don't think i'll i'll probably move very far from here i mean in a perfect world, um, I'd love somewhere that we could escape to up north for a couple of weeks during that, that part of winter. And, we can, and we'll probably end up doing that with a caravan or a, a slide on or something like that so that we can actually follow the sun a little bit during those cooler parts of the year. But um, overall, I'm, I'm very happy with, with where we are and with the uh, availability of um, fishing within, you know, within a day's drive of where we are. There's so much fishing
0: yeah nice so what's been happening um with yourself like we're, we're sort of well we're coming out of lockdown i guess now there was a little period there again last year what's been happening in your world riding fishing what's the plans for the next couple of months um plenty more fishing now that you took that little break from it last year yeah yeah i'm, I'm
1: right back into it and fishing as hard as i've ever fished i think and uh, really enjoying my fly fishing i I've been I've dabbled in fly fishing for forty odd years, and it's always been my favourite form of fishing. Really, where it's yeah, where it's applicable. I mean, it's not. I'm not someone who'll chase a fish on fly just for the sake of chasing them on fly. But where it works, I would probably rather rather catch a fish on fly gear than just about any other form of tackle. And I've been doing more and more of that. Um, and I can see myself doing more of that in future uh, as well, but you know the whole the media landscape has has changed so much, so my professional life and my working life has changed so much over the last well ten years in but particularly the last five or six years, I think with the the general demise of um, printed media, the printed yeah. magazines and books that I grew up. Both reading and writing for you know they're, they're dinosaurs. There's there's very few left, and even the ones that are left, are, I think are probably struggling. So, I've had to reinvent myself a few times during my life, and now in my early sixties, I'm I'm doing it again, and. I'm lucky to have um, a wife in, the, in, in Joe who is very, very uh, media savvy and got me involved in social media quite early on when we got together. And so I'm not scared of any of that stuff. And I, I see that as being very much the way of the future with both the pluses and minuses that go with that.
0: With that, with the whole media and the fact you've been in the media when it comes to fishing for so long, and I just had this thought because I was sitting down sort of prepping this interview and we were just working it out to do it and I'm sure if, if I could pick a person, if I had to put money, and I could be wrong, you, you could have a different opinion. If I had to put money on a fishing personality that has been in front of a camera, interviewed, written content, more than yourself, I don't think I could think of anyone more than yourself. Do you ever... Do you find every article, every blog piece, every conversation, every video, do you find there is something different that you are producing or sharing or do you find there's a lot of overlap? For example, you've done podcast interviews, you've done a heap of radio shows. Do you find there is always something new to talk about and that the experience you have within, say, you're sitting down to write an article is different every time? Because I think I've read you've written thousands of articles. Do you find there's something different in every single one or do you find yourself in a bit of repetitiveness? I certainly
1: try to find something new. Otherwise, I think you'd get bored with it. You know, people ask me, "Do I get bored with fishing?" and I, and my answer is no. And the reason is that I'm constantly reinventing myself there too, and throwing up new challenges. And I guess it's a bit the same with the communications game. Um, sure, you've got to you've got to recycle stuff. There's only so many ways you can tell someone how to rig a soft plastic and yeah. how to tie a uni knot and uh, how to how to use braid and and leaders and why you, why you use fluorocarbon leaders with braid and blah blah you know all that sort of stuff but it might be old hat to us but there's always new anglers coming up through the the, the ranks and learning all those things for the first time and we have to try and keep ourselves fresh i think so that it doesn't sound old and stale when we're telling the same stories again you know and repeating the basics for those people so that's at one end of the scale and then at the other end of the scale there is always really new stuff happening um cutting edge stuff in, in terms of lures and tackle and just you know within my fly fishing in the last couple of months i've got right into this euro nymphing for trout which is uh, something I'm sure we'll talk about as the as we go along um, and I've found that absolutely fascinating but it's like learning how to fish all over again I mean the basics still apply, you still need to be able to tie a good knot and you need to be able to know what your fly is doing in the water and what you're trying to imitate with it but the actual presentation strategies and the tackle and everything are completely different and really challenging and really rewarding when you when you get it right. So that sort of stuff is is what keeps me fresh, just constantly going out there and doing new things. I mean if I just went out and caught brim on squidgies every every day, I think I'd pretty soon get tired of that. But Then I go and uh, start catching them on hard bodies again and then new hard bodies come along and then I'm chasing them on fly and I'm tying my own flies and trying to come up with better fly patterns. And then there's the whole swim bait thing that's, I mean, really took off in the cod a couple of years ago, but now it's huge on... um, dusky flathead and it's starting to get into Mulloway and even Snapper and Barramundi up north so yeah just I, I just I'm constantly excited and constantly challenged by what's happening in fishing and that's how I manage to keep myself fresh and excited about it all and hopefully that comes through in my writing and my YouTube clips and everything else because I'm not bored with it I'm hoping that the viewers and readers don't get bored with it either
0: Yeah I think you summarised perfectly there why we continue to fish and love fishing so much it's because of that variety like you did just explain how you don't want to go out and catch the same fish on the same lure in the same spot all the time but by the time you mix up location different lures different times a year different species it's pretty much endless like you could not cover it all in a lifetime so I think that totally makes sense so what what I also want to talk about with that fly you know you're talking earlier about your fly fishing and um, you were using it in the right areas where it works effectively, not just using it for the sake of it. Can you tell me a couple, obviously brim's one of them, a couple that are really exciting you where it is effective? It's obviously the two I sort of picked up on. Was Is it brim and trout currently for you?
1: Yeah, I think I probably spent more time chasing both brim and, and trout on, on fly over the last couple of years than, than any other species. A little bit of flathead, a little bit of estuary perch and bass as well. Um and those are all areas where I see that fly can be can be competitive with, with lure fishing. Right, yeah. The thing I try never to do is just to fish for something for the sake of it, you know, for the sake of catching it on a particular kind of tackle so that you can say, yeah, I caught it on, on fly. And I suppose a classic example of that is the spawn run trout fishery. Uh, that I've you know I've, I've fished it for thirty odd years now, going up and fishing the Yukon Bean and the Threadbow and stuff like that late, late in the season when the fish start to run up the rivers pre-spawn uh, run, and you're catching them on glow bugs and nymphs and things. Now I know for a fact that I out outfish someone who's using fly gear by using uh, ultra light uh, jig flicking gear, you know, a light spinning rod on a on a beautiful little well-balanced spin rod and a couple of split shot and flicking uh, glow bugs and nymphs out on that. I'm just fishing far more effectively than someone with a big fat fly line and, and an indicator that they're having to constantly mend the line to keep the flies down on the bottom and then try and detect the takes. I can do all that so much more efficiently with the, the ultralight spin gear. So I've tended to gravitate towards that. And then something like Euro nymphing comes along And it effectively takes all those advantages of using the light spin gear to present a fly down on the bottom uh, dead drift and translates them to fly fishing and arguably does it even better than the spin gear, at least at short range. So that's pretty exciting when something like that comes along and completely turns your perceptions on their head.
0: Yeah, 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 that makes sense. Can you run through for people who've got no idea in a nutshell what that Euro nymphing concept is as best you can. I know. Yeah, it's sure. it hard about showing it, but yeah, just a real short summary.
1: Yeah, um, it came out of Europe. It came out of Eastern Europe. It's actually been around for thirty or forty years. Uh, and like you'll hear it referred to as Czech nymphing, French nymphing, Euro uh, nymphing, Polish nymphing, and those are the countries where it really sort of evolved. And basically, to to summarise it, it's just lengthening up. And making the leader finer and finer to the point where you've hardly got any fly line outside the tip in fact some of these guys fish with no fly line outside the tip at all it's just a big long super fine leader the the end of it is always super fine to get the fly down and you're just flicking this little weighted fly out just much like you would off spin gear Uh, using a longer than normal fly rod. They're usually between about 10 foot and up to 11, 11 and a half feet long. Very, very light in the tip so that you can flick out a flyer that weighs only a fraction of a gram. And then the bit of line that you've got in the water is so skinny, they use, you know, one, two kilo line you never go over about 2.5 kilo and the finer you go the better it fishes and that's really the only bit of line in the water you're holding everything else up off the water with the rod and you've got what's called a sighter which is a a piece of coloured line built into the, the butt of your leader that's effectively your indicator and you're watching that and when you get everything working absolutely perfectly the sensitivity of this setup is just amazing you can actually feel a little size 16 nymph ticking along the gravel on the bottom. That's cool. Yeah, you feel the slightest pickup from a fish. The guys that are really good at this, and I'm only just learning it, but it's it's pretty exciting. The guys who are really good at it Some of these Eastern Europeans who compete in the World Fly Fishing Championships, they'll work through 100 metres of of stream and effectively catch, if not every trout in that 100 metres, then 90% of the trout that live in that 100 metres. And that's fish from four centimetres long up to four kilos if there's fish that big in there. They just do not miss a fish. It is so effective at covering ground. That uh, they catch a phenomenal amount of fish. It's changed my perceptions about things like fishing behind another angler. You know, you used to hit a trout stream, and if there was someone up ahead of you that fish a stretch of water, you'd be really disappointed, and you'd yep. get back in the car and go and try and find somewhere else that hadn't been hammered. Now you just wade in and fish behind them, and you still catch fish with with this uh, Euro nymphing gear. That's how effective it is.
0: Isn't that crazy? With trout, does that? Do- That concept you just talked about, and and I've thought about this in other scenarios as well, do you think that you could apply something like a trout? Like, we've been out on a session before, and we've caught the same trout within about three hours. Like, he was rising in a pool, caught him, put him back. Obviously, he wasn't happy for a couple of hours, and then by the afternoon, he was up sipping on the surface in his exact same spot again, caught him again. I've done that a few times on trout. Do you think that that you can apply that to any other species? Do you think you could apply it to a species where, you know, you just talked about you'd catch every fish in the pool or do you think it's only on trout? I'm just trying to think if there's a way we can Mm. apply that concept to something that's harder to catch like a cod or, say, a saltwater species that you might think of maybe. Yeah, look, I think it's probably, there there
1: are some crossovers and some applications, but there are certainly some differences too. And the interesting parallel I can see here is with the uh, active and live scope type, Sound, you know, sounder technologies that are available now where guys are able to go out onto our impoundments and actually see cod and, and goldens holding on snags or out in the open or whatever so it's a bit the same in that you're not missing a fish you're seeing every fish that's there if you know how to read the screen but the big difference with those species is you might not be able to catch them just because yeah. you can see them doesn't mean you're going to catch them and I think that's something that a it's going to take some coming to To grips with I think for the people that are using this new technology that not every fish they see and that a lot of a lot of the punters who are criticizing the the new sonar technologies don't understand that either they think it's really unfair oh they can see the cod so you know that means they can catch it well uh, as you know better than most people just knowing that there's a cod 20 meters in front of the boat you know, sitting with its belly nearly on the bottom in in four meters of water does not mean you're going to be able to turn that fish into mm. a,
0: into a, a biter, does it? No, that's exactly right, and that's one thing uh, I really want to talk to you about as we get on um, is your opinion on that, which we will touch on. But you're right; it's it's that's the that's the difference with cod, and I think that's what keeps bringing me back to cod. Is if you compare them to trout, trout, uh, I feel like we can represent what the trout feeds on almost to a T, that they actually don't know that what you're presenting is not a grasshopper, it's not a nymph, they think it is. Whereas with cod, there's no way to present a 40-centimetre carp that looks like a carp to them. I don't think we'll ever get that close. And if we could, maybe they would feed, I I don't know, but there's still that whole concept and that whole period where they're actually not even active. Um, Exactly, and I think that's the big
1: difference. You know, you might represent something that they would normally eat absolutely 100% perfectly but if they're in a shutdown mood or they just ate one like that two hours before and they're sitting there digesting it, um, you're just not going to get the bite no matter how good your representation is. Whereas a trout, because they eat so much little stuff and they just seem to be hardwired to eat all the time. If you see underwater footage of a, a trout sitting in a, in, a, in a lie in a stream, it's just constantly Going from one side to the other, picking stuff up that's coming past in the current. Might be little bits of twig or whatever. It takes them into its mouth, tastes it, spits it out. Then another piece comes down over to its left, over it goes, and it grabs that. And so they're just, they're like a feeding machine because they're eating such small organisms, they're just on the chew all the time. The only thing that seems to change with the trout is the distance that they're willing to go to eat something so if they're shut down it might need to come down nearly on their nose but if you put something that looks pretty edible or at least interesting right on the nose of an unspooked trout in a stream, even if it's totally shut down, nine times out of ten it'll open its mouth, take that thing into its mouth, taste it, and either spit it out or swallow it. And that means you've caught it if you've got a halfway decent imitation. Other times when they're active they'll move a meter, a meter and a half, two meters to one side or the other to take stuff. So that it only seems to be the radius of their operation that that, that closes in. But there's still you can still get that instinctive bite out of them. And that's why you can catch the shutdown spawn runners in the, in the depths of winter when it's really really cold they're hardly eating anything but if a little egg comes bouncing along and virtually bounces off their nose they'll still instinctively open their mouth and and, and eat it and that's the difference between the salmonids the old world fish and and our Aussie species like barra or murray cod or, or yellow belly they're not hardwired to eat all the time I don't believe and that's why they're so much more challenging in the long run
0: That's a cool concept. I like how you explain that. You explain it really, really well and it makes total sense and it's all to do with, yeah, like you said, that food, the size of the food and and the way they feed as well. They feed completely differently. Do you reckon there's another species similar to the trout if you look at saltwater or do you reckon trout's probably the only one you could put into that scenario? Could you go out and catch a shut down saltwater species? Yeah, I think brim would be the closest
1: equivalent. And and again, a fish that eats a fair few little things, you know, little soft invertebrates and things. I mean, even, even when brim are really sulky and shut down and they're sitting under their snag, they don't seem to be able to help themselves as far as chewing on the odd barnacle or whatever. And if you flick a a bloodworm or a, a yabby in there and it sinks down in front of them, again, nine times out of ten, if if it sinks right down in front of their nose, they'll have a chew on it. And yep. so I'd say they're probably the closest but still not as hardwired to to constantly take things into their mouth as, as trout are. And it always reminds me of that, that old saying, fish don't have hands, so... If they see something that interests them, um, they need to take it into their mouth to, to find out what it is. And trout just seem to be interested in anything small enough for them to swallow, so they're doing it all the time. But yeah, brim, brim I think, would come pretty close. And maybe some of the herbivores, things like uh, luderic uh, blackfish yep. in, the, in the salt water, are a bit the same. Uh, fragments of weed drifting along on the current, if it looks halfway edible, they'll usually shuffle over and, and eat it even if they're not willing to go very far to do it so those are probably the the closest equivalents i could think of but they're still a little bit different to a
0: trout yeah 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 love the concept of um that they have to feel it like they have to put it in their mouth and feel it because they don't have hands i love that that is <laughs> that is true because it, it's like especially with the yellow, it's like they're an inquisitive fish and they've got to follow if something's flashy or something's different and they're just so intrigued and they don't to to find out exactly what it is, they really do have to just tap it a little bit, don't they? Like yeah, push it that's with their right. nose or, or, or feel it. And half the time half the fish you catch could be because of that.
1: Oh, especially when you've got little sticky sharp assist hooks on your on your vibe or whatever. The fish has only really got to come up even with its mouth closed and give it a bit of a nudge and quite often you end up pinning them you know and how often do you catch a yellow that's pinned just under the chin or on the top of the Mm. nose or whatever they probably had no intention of actually taking that thing into their mouth but like you say they're just uh, curiosity killed the cat and it does the same thing to the yellows sometimes i think
0: yeah that's cool so, one thing I really want to focus on, which we'll jump into now, is the whole fishing industry, the whole fishing world. So, coming from anglers to gear to technology to the way we fish, and then to online media and/or well, print media previously. But, can, can you tell me what I want to talk about is how it's changed and the phases, in a nutshell, the phases that you can you can see in your own mind of how it went from this to this to this to this and the big changes mm. in how it changed. But how long have you been... Before you start, how long have you been fishing for?
1: Um, so about... I guess I caught my first fish when I was about six or seven years old. So we're talking 55 years and wrote my first article when I was still in high school. So, you know, that's uh, that's 45 years ago or whatever. So, yeah, I've been, been around it for a long time and I have seen a lot of the changes that you're talking about. But I think when you really when you dig right down to it there's always been a hunger there amongst keener anglers anyway to to be better at what they do but what's changed is their ability to access information and to access it really quickly uh, almost in, in real time you know when I was growing up a new trend had come along I think about something like high speed spinning off the rocks for tuna and stuff like that Uh, a technique like that would come along or a spot would come along like Hat hat Head up on the, the north coast of New South Wales became the really trendy spot during the 70s. Now, when those techniques or those places were discovered by advance guard of, of um, adventurous pioneer anglers it took at least five or six months for that news to percolate through to the masses so someone would take some photos and then they'd think about it for a while and then they'd write an article and they'd send it off to fishing world or modern fishing and maybe it'd get accepted and then it'd sit in the editors drawer for a, a couple of weeks or a month or whatever and then it'd go to the layout department and get made into an article and sent off to the printers and uh, some of those magazines were printed overseas so it took them a couple of months to come back so you had this big lag time or lead time between the cutting edge anglers finding out about stuff and the mainstream grassroots fishermen picking up on the the vibe of what was going on. So quite often you had the running to yourself for six months, even a year, and no one else was onto those spots or onto those techniques. And then slowly they started to find out about it and a magazine article had come out and one bloke would read it and then he'd share it with his mates and they'd talk about it in the car going to their fishing spot. And a trend would start. Now that whole process that used to take anything from 4 months to a year can happen in 4 minutes to <laughs> a day, you know. Yep. So someone puts a post up on Instagram or Facebook, uh, it gets shared, it gets talked about, it gets a squillion likes and suddenly everybody's doing that thing. So what's really changed is the speed. Uh, at which the information is disseminated and the speed with which those trends both come and, and fade away. So
0: that's that's been the biggest change that I've seen in my lifetime. Do you think it's better the way it is now? Obviously, with evolution of anything, right? Well, it's that's not true. Evolution is usually a good thing to a point, and then there's obviously parts of it that aren't like when we say we i'm talking not fishing right now like say we don't look after the land and then things start to Mm. go backwards but in terms of the way we learn and things to me it's got to there's got to be more people fishing now than there was before would you say from 40 years ago or
1: oh for sure i mean there's more people just because there's more population whether there's more people as a percentage of that population I'm i'm not quite so sure about but yeah there's certainly a lot more pressure
0: on on our waterways now than there was when when I was a young bloke. So okay, so let's go back 45 years ago, what was and sort of and I'm happy for you to reference saltwater as well, but if you can think about any freshwater based reference that, what was the scenario like? What what were the big changes? So as you roll through from what are we talking the 1970s? Mm, yep. It was a start. So, what was a big change through the seventies and the eighties and the nineties as things developed that were, if you can think off the top of your head, that were big in fishing?
1: Well, I think the tackle, the tackle changes were the, were the big ones during that period. Just the increased sophistication of the tackle. I mean, I can still remember the first time I ever picked up a graphite rod. And really. Yeah, just couldn't believe how light it was. You know, we'd gone... I'd started off with solid fiberglass and then gone to hollow fiberglass and then someone handed me a graphite rod and I went, oh my gosh, you know, this thing is so light so sensitive i can feel what's going on out there they were also incredibly fragile in those days i think the first the first three graphite rods i owned i managed to break in very quick time (laughs) but you know that was that was a a huge advance and then a a little probably the following decade it was it was braided line and again i can remember the very first time i ever fished with braid and just when was
0: it do you remember (gasps) oh roughly
1: the first big trip I can remember was actually during the late 80s and I did a trip up to the uh, barrier reef and I went out on a, on a long range boat and we were jigging on the, on the outer edge of the reef and the other guys on board were all using 80 pound nylon, stretchy thick nylon and I had braid, it was very very new in those days. And the difference was just incredible. Really, I was, I was getting my jigs down in the current where they couldn't get them down. I was hooking fish and I was landing them. I, I was catching dog tooth tuna and stuff like that. And these guys, they they nicknamed me Chainsaw because when I'd hook up my fish would take off and just slice off everyone else's line because they all oh. had this thick soft mono you know and it just the, the, the braid just went through it like a hot knife through butter and i was landing fish and they weren't so that was that was pretty revolutionary the combination of those two things graphite rods and and braid made a big difference and then and that was
0: early days too it's not it's like not even comparable to the braid we use now oh, and, and no, it, it was, made a big difference like it was
1: really thick stuff compared it, the first stuff i had actually had a nylon core up the center oh. of it It was a... Pretty sure it was an abu braid, and it had a, a woven outer uh, casing and, and a thin um, mono core. I don't know why, but it was good. But no, compared to today, it was it was pretty agricultural stuff, you know. Yeah. And then spider wire came along, and those kind of things, and they were pretty stiff and springy, but they had. Virtually zero stretch, and they they were skin you know skinny for their breaking strain, and so they gave us all those advantages that we've come to take for granted with braid, and that that really turned my fishing on its head. And then spin reels, you know, spinning reels, egg beaters, thread lines. When I was a kid, they were pretty ordinary. Really. Um, Oh, like the slop in them, you'd you'd get a strike and you'd hear this big clunk because the the rotor would go through a quarter of a turn backwards before Back it hit kick. the yeah. anti reverse, you know. Yeah. And and they were slow, like the gearing was really slow in them, and you would chew the gears out on them all the time, and you couldn't change them from left to right hand, and they they were just and the drags were awful. If you were a serious fisherman, you used a baitcaster or an overhead. Really, I mean, a Even- wheel was yeah for for everything oh well apart from trout trout and no one was chasing brim on lures in those days but um apart from those sort of smaller fish if you were a serious angler you you'd look down your nose a bit at people who use spin reels i mean i can remember my first trip to the northern territory in 1981 and everybody had red abu baitcasters and if you saw someone with a a Mitchell spin reel or something on their rod, you, you quietly sort of have a bit of a laugh behind your hand. You're fishing for mundy with a spin reel, mate. You're kidding yourself. you know. And it was a badge of, of um, a tourist from Melbourne would be the only person who would go to the Northern Territory and, and fish for Barra with a spin reel. Well. And nowadays, you can chase everything up to and including marlin and big sharks and big tuna on, on spin reels. So that's been, a, that's been a huge advance on the tackle front as well.
0: I would have thought it would have gone, like, and this is just total guess because I, I would have had no idea, but if you were to ask me, I would have said spin would have been the big thing before overheads, but that's crazy. So it's just, well, it it's was, just because it, the quality of the gear.
1: Yeah, that's right. I mean, it was the big thing for the grassroots weekend anglers and danglers, but also you've got to remember the things like um, uh, side casts and, and center pins and even hand lines. You know, you don't see anyone fishing with a hand line no. much these days, but when I was growing up, Lots of people fished with handlines. My first freshwater fishing was in the Lachlan River at Condoblin, and we all used um, handlines wrapped around a Coke bottle, the old uh, Coke bottle that had the, the bit of a taper in the middle of it. You'd, you'd wrap your 20-pound nylon around that, about 50 meters of it, with a, a long shank two-o hook on the end of it and a, and a running uh, bean sinker and that's what you put your worms or your yabby or whatever on and fished for uh, golden perch and and um, silvers and murray cod and things with that so yeah hand lines were really really popular every probably if you saw five anglers on a jetty at least two or three of them would be fishing with a hand line rather than a rod and reel when i first started out
0: yeah because i i'm going <coughs> to say i grew up watching tv shows watch you and bushy um I would have been from about the start of the 2000, like 2000 I reckon, 2000 2004 mm-hmm. and I still know even then there was hand lines in fishing shows quite often. Yeah. Um and it didn't really disappear till probably the late like 2010s or maybe yep. in the middle there somewhere. So and that's just because you're it's just that advancement. So okay, so that was what are we looking at the 80s 9 and then what started yeah. to happen through the 9 is there and is there a period where you think things escalated really quickly? um as well like
1: yeah i think the the big acceleration from my point of view happened from about the mid 90s through into the early 2000s and i think a lot of it was tied to the explosion in interest in fishing for brim with lures which is something that bushy and myself had a played a fairly major part in promoting it and it it paralleled the development of the uh, ABT-style tournament circuit in Australia. So you had all these tournament anglers chasing, first of all, bass, and then later brim, and then ultimately barramundi as well. And now you've got the same style of tournaments on yellowbelly and and cod and flathead and other species. So catch-and-release style tournaments with highly competitive and very uh, very skilled anglers using the latest in tackle all that sort of stuff really seemed to happen from about 94, 95 through into about 2005, 2006. I'd say that decade from 95 to 2005 saw the biggest change in, um, in fishing philosophy, I guess, in Australia in that the cutting edge guys, that's when the bass boats arrived in Australia, that's when the electronics made a big leap, that's when we saw uh, our first... Um, uh, well, electric motors had been around for quite a bit before that, but I can still remember pulling into a, into service stations as, as late as the mid-90s and having fishermen walk over to me and say, mate, what's that thing on the front of your boat? What does it yeah. do? <laughs> it's a long time since anyone's walked up to me and asked what the electric motor is on the front of my
0: boat. Yeah. But <laughs> they used to in those days. Do you remember your first one? Oh, look. I,
1: I used to fish with guys that had the old Shakespeare ones that went on the back of the boat, you know, and they looked like a Mixmaster and 14-pound yep. four, thrust or whatever. I never actually owned one of those. I'm pretty sure my very first one was a was a Minn Kota, Um and I would have got it, I reckon, probably about 92, 93, somewhere around there, and had it on a Webster Twin Fisher. And that was where... You know that was when you used to pull into the servos, or you were at the at the boat ramp, and people would walk up and say, "How does that thing work, mate? Is it like an anchor?" Or <laughs> <laughs>
0: would you uh, say the electric was one of the biggest changes, revolutionary changes in the way you fished? Like you went from graphite rods to braid, which was probably massive. But then, how did you used to cast? And you're going to get that question from anyone who's born after 2000, or even where yeah. I'm born, 1995, 94. Did did How did you fish before it? Oh, I like, know, yeah. How did you do, ha- you do it? Now, if you're going down and fishing the Go Fish a competition, and if you're not, I recommend you do. But if you are heading down, I just want to let you in on some information. What I do and what I did last year is I headed down three, four days before the event and fished the lake for a couple of days. I'm going to be doing the exact same thing this year. And what I do that for is to fish all three areas, the top section, the middle section, the bottom – all the all of the water, a fish it all, work out what the fish are biting on, where they're biting, what the water temperature is down there, and basically put together a complete go fish report. So, a Negambi report, pre-go fish Negambi report on how I found it to fish. So, we did it last year. I was joined by Karen Rees. She's a regular down there and fishes it quite a lot. She shared what she'd been finding over the last couple of weeks before it, and I obviously shared what I'd learned over those few days. and we put together a report on what the techniques you should be using, where the fish are biting, and the key area to fish. And we had some members getting on to some great fish. Now, that report is in the SF membership platform. So, all the members were able to see that report, get in, get access to that and a lot of them got onto some really, really good fish because they just had that first hand knowledge. So, I'm going to be doing that again this year and that report will go up inside the Social Fishing membership platform and you become a, you can become a member at socialfishing.com.au not only do you get that but you get all of the content we've talked about previously and to help you at GoFish to win, to help you win that $80,000 cod there is also the SF maps, so inside the SF maps we have Nagambi lakes it is completely mapped out with all the areas, all the key spots, so you can do your research before you get there you can also do your research on where to put in, where to stay, where to camp because we actually ran into a couple of guys last year while we were fishing it and they had no idea where to launch. They actually were camping at a at a location and they drove uh, their car and their boat right around to another side of the lake, thinking that was the closest boat ramp, without realizing that they were launching a long, long, long way from their camp and that boat ride was going to take a long way. They were actually about to travel in the wrong direction upriver rather than downriver towards their camp, let alone did they not know that there was a boat ramp about 500 meters from their camp where they were camped. So they were in a world of trouble, but luckily we sort of pointed them in the right direction. But I'm sure so many more people fall into that same bucket and sort of had completely lost. And that goes to for anywhere when you're fishing in a lot of different places. But that all would have been a lot easier if they had checked out the maps. We showed the guys the maps and showed them exactly where they should have been and they were overwhelmed that there was a boat ramp right there. But that is all included on the Ngambi Lakes maps inside the SF maps on our membership platform. So it gives you all the boat ramps, all the camp spots and all the key areas to fish. You'll get that and the report plus the rest of the membership if you become a member today. So jump on and check out the social fishing membership to get access to that content to give you the upper hand at GoFishNegambi. Like I said, you can get it all at socialfishing.com.au. I couldn't go back to, there's no way
1: I could go back now to not one. Did you catch but we definitely caught less, yeah, and right. we got snagged more, and we lost more lures, and so you had to line up for drifts. You yep. became quite good at it, you know. You'd sort of pick the wind and the current and try and do a drift, or you'd anchor. I know uh, when I used to fish um, up in the tropics a lot, Barra, Barra Country, and they were quite slow to come to electric motors up there because of the maintenance issues and the fact that yeah. you know if you are out in the middle of Arnhem Land or whatever and you're and you're lecky, kick the bucket it was a bit hard to get it fixed and and it is pretty hard country on electrics up there so what a lot of the what a lot of the very good barra guides would do they would either nose the boat in on the bank so if you were fishing say a creek mouth or a gutter or a little runoff or whatever they'd actually push the nose of the boat using the outboard up onto the bank a casting distance away from that creek mouth and just sit there, and then you'd pepper the, the snag or the creek mouth or the gutter or whatever, and then they'd move to the other side of it and do the same thing again. And what a lot of the others had was what they call mule anchors, just a a wedge-shaped piece of lead on a, on a short length of rope, and you'd just ease it in over the back of the boat on quite a short... You, know, you, you, you just make contact with the bottom, not have too much angle in the rope, and it would just hold you long enough to put a couple of casts in, then you'd lift it off the bottom, drift a boat length, drop ah, it back down yep. again. So there was those kind of things, but yeah, it really spoils you having an electric motor. It's it, it's interesting that you identified that because I've written articles about you know the major changes in in fishing, and I think the the electric motor tends to fly under the the radar a bit, uh, but it, it really really has dramatically altered the way we fish. That's for sure.
0: Or if you if someone asked me that question, right, if you had of asked that me question in my scene, which is all COD, all natives, that would be the biggest thing. We went from mm. We went from catching one to, or oh, two to three fish on a good session on the bidgie for a full day in the warmer months, small cod. We went from two or three to eight, the day that we had the electric motor. So, this is with no <laughs> prior knowledge on how to drive it, like yeah, obviously yeah. Poor, poor skills at using <laughs> it. Went from three fish to eight, like easily doubled or tripled the fish. And even people ask me now who are getting into fishing, they're like, oh, I've got a boat, but... I don't know if it's worth spending the money on an electric motor. I was like, (laughs) buy an electric before you buy a sounder, before you buy an expensive rod. It really makes, especially on the native scene. So true. Yeah. Yeah. So in that, you just mentioned that article about the changes in fishing and obviously the Leckie flew under. So we've got the braid, you've got um, the advancements of obviously spin reels getting better. What, and actually I want to come back, we'll come back to that. You know how you just talked about the the ABT and the whole tournament stuff in those 10 years? Do you think the reason it changed so much is just because, not for the tournament themselves, but for the light that the tournament shed on fishing and that push for those guys wanting to have the best and the latest and new stuff, is that, it's like an yeah, advanced whole two decades so. into one? I think so, and, and you, get a, you get a
1: definite trickle-down effect. I guess... You could make parallels in motor racing, you know, not a lot of us are interested in ever driving a a really fast car around Mount Panorama, but the stuff that gets developed for the the Bathurst races and things like that ultimately trickles down into the cars that we all drive, so the the brake pads and and everything to do with the vehicles we get the trickle-down effect of what they're doing uh, at the cutting edge of the uh, of motor racing. And it's pretty much the same, I think, with um, tournament fishing. I'm, most anglers I know are not at all interested in fishing in tournaments. And when you look at the total participation over the last 20 years or so in the ABT tournaments, it would still only represent probably 0.01% of the fishing population that have ever actually fished in one. Yep. Yet the developments that have happened and that have been driven by that 0.01% of the fishing population have have benefited a far, far greater number of anglers. Certainly the the top 10 or 15 or 20% uh, of anglers have have really benefited from the, the tackle breakthroughs, the lure developments, the adoption of the electric motors, the advances in the marine electronics. All those things have been driven to one extent or another and the boats themselves, by um,
0: by the tournament circuit. So what's another advancement that you think is big, leading more towards to, to the 2000s and onwards? Well, then I think you get into your marine
1: electronics and yep. the sounders. GP, GPS is another one that tends to fly under the radar a bit. And sure, it's a little bit less applicable uh, on the freshwater scene than it is on the, on the saltwater scene. But just being able to go back to a precise location um, I mean, in, in offshore fishing, it, it was it was a radical change. When I grew up and we used to reef fish offshore, off you used landmarks, so you lined up a, a tree That's behind crazy. the surf club on the beach with the hill behind and with a notch in the hill behind in one direction and then in the other direction it was the a frame white house with the oh. with the tv tower in the background and if any of those landmarks changed you lost your spot oh or that's funny as if you, yeah oh, if funny. you went out too early in the morning and it was too dark to see him you couldn't find your spot or if there was bushfire smoke or the fog rolled in suddenly you couldn't find anywhere you know yeah, just being able imagine. to go
0: back oh it's it's a huge difference yeah that's crazy. So, yeah, you would And you could have taken you two hours to get it, like, bang on if it was only, like, a small spot, too. And like, it, it often
1: did. We used to... And because we didn't have electrics or anything, so we are anchoring up. So you'd put the anchor out and you'd try and get yourself into position. And you thought you had your landmarks pretty lined up and then you just weren't catching anything. So you'd pull your anchor up and you'd try again. And sometimes you might have five shifts before you finally got on your mark where, where your fish were. So GPS changed all that and i mean i use gps in in freshwater a lot um especially on impoundments you know because especially if you're fishing new bodies of water that you haven't fished before it's really easy to get disoriented and not be able to find your way back to that that sunken tree where you caught a cod two days ago but if you punch it into the um into the gps and i do i do a lot of my best brim fishing using the gps i fish a couple of um landlocked well they're called eye intermittently closed and open lakes and lagoons. So they're coastal lakes that spend a lot of time closed to the sea. So they don't have any tides, and they slowly fill as as it rains, or they have done in the last couple of years because we've yeah. had you know a fair bit of rain. And there's snags lying on the bottom in in, in these things, and they're in three metres of not particularly clear water. So you can't find the snag visually, and I know there'll be half a dozen big brims sitting on one of these snags. So I have a I have like a whole bunch of them in my GPS. And I'll just go and position myself with the electric motor a nice casting distance away. And this is how I've caught most of my really big uh, brim on fly, is by positioning myself um, 30 metres away from a sunken tree. And I'll make a few casts, and then I'll just shuffle forward a metre or so using the the motor guide electric, the jog function, and re-anchor myself again with the electric, make another cast, and... It's just completely changed the way I target these big brim. It looks like I'm out in the middle of nowhere to anyone going past, but I'm actually fishing a piece of structure without being able to see it anywhere other than on the screen of my GPS. I'm not even looking at the sounder because I know I'm sitting in three metres of water with virtually nothing underneath me, flat bottom, but I know that I'm within casting distance of that tree lying on the bottom. So, yeah, that stuff's really
0: changed the way I fish. What would be your favourite era from those 45, 50 years, I know, well, we're living in the one we're in right now, so that's the mm. one you've got to enjoy right now, but do you have a favourite era, whether it be five, ten years? Yeah,
1: is... I, I have to say the first decade of the 2000s was my favourite, because because all those things came together, and then Bushy and I got involved with Shimano and, and designed the squidgies for them, so the... Soft plastics, which we haven't sort of talked too much about yet, but soft plastics really changed a lot of things too. That was such an exciting era. And we went on the road and did these squidgy tours. We travelled all around Australia and gave talks. And I can still remember the first one we ever did was in Hobart. Really? And uh, yeah, the plane was running late. We landed at Hobart Airport. We were going to some big, big flash hotel on the uh, edge of Hobart to give our first ever squidgy night and we thought oh you know probably get 40 or 50 people turn up to this thing they'll be pretty keen and we we're running really late and we got there and went in through the back door of the hotel and walked out onto the stage and i bushy and i looked at each other we seriously thought we'd gone onto the wrong stage because there was 300 plus People in, well. in the crowd, and they all started applauding. It was like being rock stars, you know. And we gave this squidgy talk, and they were just absolutely fascinated. And we did those all round. I think the biggest one we ever gave was was in Darwin. We had something like five hundred people at a uh, at a club in Darwin for one of the talks. But we'd regularly pull two two or three hundred people. And the first time you went somewhere, there was a, there was a lot of interest, but also a certain amount of skepticism. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. These plastic things, are they really as good as you blokes reckon? You know, And then you'd go back to the same place a year later to give another talk and those same sceptical guys and girls were coming up to you with a fistful of photos to show you and go, look, at see this that I caught on your squidgy? And, oh, mate, I've never caught so many fish in my life. So that was pretty, pretty exciting to be able to actually see it changing, to go in, give the education, supply the, you know, Put the gear on the market that that they could use to do that with, and then come back a year or eighteen months later, and see that it had completely turned their fishing upside down. And they were catching so many wolf... they were catching enough fish that they could start letting some fish go, yeah, they could be selective about what they were keeping. You know, so it changed the face of Australian fishing. So I would have to say that first decade of the 2000s was
0: the most rewarding and exciting time in my life as far as uh, fishing goes. And plastics were a big thing. So, when you started doing those talks, were there any other brand of plastics out big enough to have been known or it was full-on, what are these things? And why do you think they weren't here sooner? Like, it's dead set. Now, when you think about it, one of the most simply designed lures. Yeah. So, I, I yeah, it's just crazy how they didn't come out before other things, although I guess people just started with hard things like metal and wood. Mm. And the other thing with the plastics is, I mean, they'd been
1: around for yonks. Americans have had soft plastics since the 1950s. Right. And I often talk about the three waves of soft plastics in Australia. The first wave, I can remember when the first ones started being widely used here, and that was as as early as the early 1970s. Okay. There were people catching flathead, the two species that seemed to get caught on them a lot were flathead down south and barramundi up north. And all you had was Mr Twisters and Vibra tails. They were the only two Mr. brands Mr Twister. You, the old Mr oh, Twister. No, I've heard about that. And the jig heads. The jig heads they were on were really average. The hooks were. Blunt. The eyes of the jig heads were always clogged up with paint, so you had to get another hook and dig through the paint so you could tie your, your hook on. And if you were a halfway decent fisherman, you grabbed a file and sharpened up the hook a bit to try and get it sharp enough to catch a fish. But they caught fish, and they were a bit of a they were a bit of a phenomenon. I can still remember the first um, Fishing World magazine cover with a flathead on a on a, a chartreuse green. Mr Twister it was the first time I'd ever seen a soft plastic on the cover of a, an Australian fishing magazine and that would have been 1979 yeah 78 79 around there so they were they were starting to make a bit of a, an impression but they just didn't take off and people didn't really use them for anything other than flathead and barra okay. then there was this, there was a second wave during the 90s when a few guys and a couple of guys did round Australia trips and were catching all kinds of really interesting uh, species, particularly up north on, on soft plastics. He was still largely confined to uh, just the, the Mr. Twisters and the tails although there were a couple of other brands starting to appear on the market by the early 1990s. But again, it really didn't take off. And it wasn't until we launched the Squidgies in 2001, 2002, that we kick-started the third wave and that's the one that we're still on the crest of I mean soft plastics are not going to go away now they're no. a, they're a mainstream method of fishing I can always remember a tackle shop owner telling me in about 2004 he said you guys have cracked it he said I, I came into the shop I was in the shop the other day and there were two old blokes both in their probably 70s standing at the wall, at the lure wall, arguing over which is the best coloured squidgy to catch Flathead. And he said those blokes would have never used anything other than pilchards and and yabbies and maybe throw on a a chrome metal lure for a tailor occasionally, but they would never have used any other kind of lure in their life. And there they
0: were arguing about what the best coloured squidgy was. So we cracked it. funny as... And then, I would, I would have to say from my, just my very short time fishing, there was a wave in the freshwater of all of those plastics and then this wave of big plastics that just were not even available and like you could, we, we, we wanted to catch big on plastics and the first one someone caught one on was a slick rig, a squidgy <laughs> slick rig, 140 mil, I think. Yeah. Green grunner. I think that's the color. Yeah. Um, yeah. And this fella, he was a barra fisherman. He come down and he went into the tackle shop. and was talking to Chris. He's like, I'm going to go catch a cotton on one of these. And Chris was like, no, nah, you need spin a bait or a hard body, mate. And this is only <laughs> going back to like 2012 or 14. Anyway, yep. he caught a fish and that's all we could find. So, we started throwing them and we got our hands on anything we could find that was slightly bigger. And now, there's just walls full <laughs> of them. You couldn't buy a big plastic on a wall of a freshwater tackle shop. No. Um, until sort of 2015 but so where do you think where do you think it's going do you have Mm. or do have you thought about where where the next 10 years is going and obviously technology make up a big part of that but do you have any idea or any thoughts on if it will change in another drastic way like it's just changed incredibly with live technology do you think that's it like is there sort of a plateau or will it just continue to go
1: Oh, I think it's going to plateau for a little while, but I I don't think it'll ever stop. There there must be things around the corner I'm that scared. we haven't even thought of yet. Yeah, I mean, just thinking about line the the line seems to get skinnier and skinnier. I mean, imagine if you could come up with a a fluorocarbon that was. Like braid. Uh, Yeah, that was really, really strong, but incredibly thin and invisible to the fish. That would would be a huge breakthrough. Um, But at the moment, it seems like, I think we have hit a little bit of a, a plateau. We've had 15 years or so of really rapid development, and I think people are just needing to get their heads around where we are at the moment. But having said that, there could be some big surprises. Uh, 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 The electronics thing just never ceases to amaze me. It's going to get better and better. It's going to become more affordable and more usable. I mean, at the moment, all the uh, active live targeting stuff and everything, it's it's tending to be only used by the real switched-on anglers. Um, And you've got to know a little bit about what you're doing, both to set it up and to use it and to interpret it. But I think that's going to get easier and easier for the mainstream fish to, to to get their heads around I mean when I when sounders first started being widely used by anglers and they were the old paper you used to put the paper rolls in them and the little stylus would scratched the picture of the bottom and you needed to know what you were looking at to be did able did you to, use one like that it. oh I sure did wow. I can still I still have flashbacks to what it smelt like when you opened the little front panel to change the paper rolls over this burnt carbon s- smell That's and the little stylus going tick 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 and making these little scratchy marks on the on the paper so it's gone from that to what we've got now just in in my lifetime so it's surely it's only going to get better and better and, and more accessible to the average angler, I think, and, and more affordable too. I mean, what you what you get in terms of bang for your buck in, in electronics got really good and now now they're a bit expensive again if you want to be at that cutting edge stuff, but that'll come down. There'll be consumer units that are a thousand bucks that are doing what these four thousand dollar units will do, I reckon, within twelve to forty eight months. Yeah.
0: It happened with the um, down and side scan yeah, technology. Exactly. It was ridiculously expensive, what, 10 years ago or 8 yep. years ago? or Yeah, yep. and it's cheap as now. Well, yeah, cheap to a point depending on your screen size, but you're <laughs> yeah, right. That's right. Um, so, what is your thoughts? I, I talked about it earlier and I said I'd come back to it. What is your thoughts on live technology? Have you used it? Um, Cause, and I'm because we're stuck. Like I mean, I spend so much of my time in the freshwater. It is massive on the cod and the yellows. Mm. Is it as big in the salt water? What is your opinion of it?
1: It's nowhere near as big in the salt yet. Um, bass, definitely. I think it it's starting to be used a little bit in the brim. Um, look, I I'm I'm a huge fan of it. I don't I don't have it fitted to my boat yet. I've been in boats that have got it and watched other people use it. I love watching it being used, I think it's going to take a little while for people to get to a point where they're using it effectively rather than just going, oh my gosh, look at that, there's one there, and and perhaps wasting a lot of time targeting inactive fish, what we talked very, about before, cotton yellows that won't yep. bite, you know, you can spend your whole day bent over at the front of the boat watching pictures of fish on the screen. Put my hands have... up for that. <laughs> And I'll, I'll do the same thing when I've got it, and I will embrace it. I'll, I'll, I'll get into it, but I, it's never going to be the be all and end all. And, and as I always say to people about any of those electronics, seeing fish and catching them are two entirely different things. Yep. And you still got to be able to catch, catch the fish that you're seeing on the screen. But at least you know, if there's no fish there, it's good to know that you're not. That's wasting a big time. one. Yeah, yeah, that's the big one. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. You're right, and you got to. You you've really got to take it on board and just you don't, of what I've found is that you don't want to use it in a way that it makes you enjoy what you're doing less or it reduces mm. the enjoyment in what you're doing um, yep. because it does, staring at a script, because if you're not looking at it, you're not staring at it the whole time, you may as well not look at it at all because it's not <laughs> effective if that makes sense. So, yeah, yeah. It's, it's one you have to kind of try and balance, I guess, but um, yeah, that's interesting. I got another question for you. what What does fishing mean to you? Can you summarize what fishing is for you? What does it mean for Starlo?
1: Yeah, I mean it's been such an integral part of my life for for such a long time that it's almost like uh, it's almost like breathing or or eating to me. It's just if I'm not doing it, I'm thinking about the next time I'm going, or I'm uh, you know I drift off to sleep at night thinking about scenarios and and places that I could go and try something that I've just learnt like this. And, and it's so cyclic you know. something comes along at the moment all I can think about is this bloody Euro-nymphing so I've been sitting at the fly-tying bench tying these little heavily weighted nymphs that you use on the Euro-nymphing gear and thinking about other places where I can do it and when my next trip up to the mountains is going to be to give it a crack and that kind of thing but then something else will come along I was the same only a year or two ago I was the same about big flathead on, on big soft plastics and a year or two before that it was about chasing cod on, on surf surface Lewis and things like that. So, yeah, I'm a bit of a... Uh, it, it comes in cycles and, and I, I get absolutely mad keen on something and then something sh- new and shiny comes along and it attracts me over to it. Now, so Dangerous. That's, that, that's what it is to me. <laughs> it's an yeah. addiction.
0: Yeah. Can you tell me what a week, month, year likes looks like for you so if I was to tag along with you for like a week or, or a month what is a mixture of fishing and work like obviously okay, that, is a, that has changed a lot in the last two years um, but do you fish every single week um, do you try to sneak out for afternoon sessions or do you plan your fishing around big decent trips where you can go test a theory what does a, a week a month a year look yeah, like Yeah, a little bit
1: it's a, it's a bit all over the place and like you say the last two years have been Uh, non-standard, but I I tried to work it out the other day and I'd say on average I try and fish three times a week Um, and, you know, one of those trips might be an hour and a half two hours down to the local beach to chuck a a bait out for a salmon another one of them might be a full day on the water chasing brim on on fly you know starting at first light and not getting off the water until last light sort of thing well i don't but i do less and less of those super big days anymore i i tend to sort of uh, like my three to four hour sessions but i'll try and get at least three of those in a week and and sometimes more and then trips away i've just come back from four days um, at Anaminibi chasing trout uh, up in the rivers up there on the Euronymphing gear so that was that was fishing pretty intensively each day but where once upon a time I would have got up at 5.36 in the morning been on the water by 6.37 and fished until I couldn't see the line anymore. These days uh, we'll fish the morning and then knock off come back Go, go to the local, local bakery and have a nice coffee and a and a pie or something and um, maybe kick back for an hour or two and then go out and have an afternoon session. So I've, I've got to take it, you know, I'm, I'm 63 now and um, it, I find if I fish two or three really intensive days, the, the back starts to ache, the knees start to give me a bit of grief and, and suddenly I'm not enjoying it anymore. So I think enjoying it and stopping to smell the roses, if you like, to use an analogy, is... Um, is something that's becoming more important as I get older and as I've done more fishing. I'd, I'd rather do something that I really enjoy. Like I did heaps of offshore game fishing when I was a younger bloke, you know, chasing marlin and tuna and everything out on the blue water. It really wouldn't worry me too much if I never did that again. I still probably will go out and do it very occasionally, but I kind of worked my way through that and it just... Became too hard, and you you cop such a flogging so often, and the you know the weather cuts up, and you're you in little tinnies and stuff miles out on the continental shelf, and you've got to pound back into the the sea. And it's all right when you're 20, 30, even into your early 40s. But by the time you get into your late 50s and early 60s, you have a day like that, and all you want to do is come home, <laughs> and yeah, lie in bed for about the next three days trying to recover. So yeah, I'm pacing myself a little bit more and just trying to pick the eyes out of it and do the things that really that 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 please me and that i find challenging and find enjoyable
0: because i imagine through fishing you've found you have got to look after your body because it's i find even though it's a hobby it's something that can sometimes push us too far that then affects us and i know it affects a lot of people well more physically um and it can wreck you for a bit and you you would preach to that wouldn't you that you actually got to be real careful and look after yourself
1: Oh, you have. You know, when I was, well, I used to fish the ABT tournament circuits pretty hard in the in the early two thousands. And um, a two or three day tournament, especially with a full day of pre fishing before, and quite often you've driven for eight or ten hours to get to wherever it is uh, that the comp is going to be on. Geez, I tell you what, after about two or three of those back to back, you are just wrecked mentally as well as physically because you're concentrating so hard. Um, the whole time that you're on the water and you're making decisions and and um, trying to get things right so that you you're actually fishing competitively, that sort of stuff really takes its toll. And for that reason, I've I've cut right back on my competition fishing. I still is still a real place in my heart for it, and I absolutely love um, what the ABT and those style of tournaments stand for and what they brought to our fishing. But it's a it's a bit of a young person's game, I reckon. So I'm I'm cutting back a little bit on all of that.
0: Yeah, it makes total sense. Um, I've got a couple more questions for you, mate, if you don't mind. No, that's all right. One in particular, I've, this is something that I rack my brain around, right? And I mentioned it to quite a few people in the podcast and you're probably one of the best people to ask on this topic. We could probably do a whole episode on it. But moon, moon phases, right? <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And I'm sure you've yeah. written about it. I'm sure you've yeah. d- talked about it. I understand... And give me your opinion on moon phases and I know the moon... And you probably have researched it as well. How other than... Obviously, to explain to me how it affects me in the salt because salt, you got tides. Mm. Can, how do you think... So, for me in the freshwater scene, right? I understand how moon phases affect fish based on light. So, yep. in the dark, not not so much in the day but more around their feeding patterns. So... You know, if it's light in the dark and then allows them to feed more, they're not going to feed as much mm-hmm. in the day. So light makes sense. It's it's just it, it does make sense, and you mix it with experience. But other than that, how does the moon phase affect fish? And do you know of any studies, scientific studies that have been done on it? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a
1: it's a big question, and I, I, over the course of my fishing career, I've gone from putting a fair bit of stock in it to going through a period where I just think that it was probably a distraction and not worthy of the attention that myself and a lot of other people had put into it and then to sort of coming back and thinking, well, yes, it, it clearly does have an impact. I mean it's it's got such a, a big impact on all kinds of wildlife. So there is stuff going on. there's no doubt about it. but you touched on an important thing there with the saltwater. I think tides, Uh, and sea conditions and water clarity and things like that are always going to be more important than the moon phases and the salooner periods uh, in an open tidal saltwater system. When you start to get into systems that have got a little bit less dynamic stuff going on within them, so you haven't got tides and you haven't got a lot of variation, then suddenly those moon phase things start to... Have more of an impact, I think, and particularly, I've gone, I've, I went right away from the salooner tables and everything for a long time, and I'm actually coming back to putting a little bit more credence in it now, and particularly the the moon rise, moon set, moon directly overhead, moon directly underfoot type periods. I am noticing that in a lot of these closed systems, and I mentioned before about the cols that I fish that are uh, intermittently closed and open lakes and lagoons along the coast that have got a lot of these big brim in them. You'll, if you don't sort of look at it, you just go fishing, suddenly you'll notice there's a 45-minute period at some weird time in the day, 3.30 in the afternoon, and you just go bang, 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 and you catch half a dozen fish and then it tapers off again. It's interesting to do that and then come home and have a look and see if it correlates, and geez, a lot of times it does. It correlates with those major and minor feeding periods uh, with the salooner tables, or it's close enough to them to be the the smoking gun for the reason that it happened snapper uh, on the offshore reefs well, I chase snapper quite a bit on soft plastics and metal lures and, and on bait as well that moon rise period in particular and guys like Chris Cleaver have given me the heads up on that over the years when that moon comes up over the horizon it doesn't really matter if it's, if it's 9 o'clock in the morning or 3 o'clock in the afternoon they'll, they'll almost always have a bit of a flurry and a bit of a bite and it's well worth being there uh, when that happens other times it just completely goes out the window and when it should be good it's not and when it should should be terrible they'll have a bite so i don't know there's still as many questions as there are answers but it is definitely worth keeping an eye on and and making some notes but don't dictate your whole fishing around it because then it just becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy if you say to yourself the major and minor periods are when I'm going to catch the fish, so I'm not going to fish at any other time. I'm just going to go fishing at those times of the Salona tables. Then that's when you're going to catch your fish. Obviously, and that's going to reinforce your your notion that that's when it works. So you've just got. I actually prefer to do it blind, so I just go fishing and then look at it afterwards and see if there's any correlation. But yeah, there's, there's so much we don't know. But as to why it works, I mean, obviously, the fish can fish and other uh, animals can feel what's going on. They can feel that gravitational pull from the moon. Apparently, I've read this and I need to do some more reading on it to see if it's an urban myth or not, but they reckon if you take oysters from the coast that open on the high tide... Okay, so you've got an oyster in my local estuary. It stays closed when the tide's low because it's exposed to the air. The tide comes in, the water covers it, the oyster opens, starts filtering water, feeding, blah-de-blah. You take that oyster and drive 300 kilometres inland, it will still open and close but not to the time cycle that it was on on the coast, but to what the tide would be at that point 300 kilometres inland if that was the sea. So it's it's being, it's being feeling the draw of the gravity of the moon and the sun and knowing when the tide would be high at that point. Now, that's all a bit esoteric and we're talking about oysters, but Barramundi and the impoundments up north do very much the same thing. So you can be on somewhere like a Woonga, or Tinaroo and suddenly the barrel will come on the bite and you look at the tide charts later and find out that there was a tide change in the salt water um, at that exact time when, when they came on the chew or half an hour earlier in the salt water than when they came on the chew because if uh, because they're inland a little bit you know and they're, they're almost sort of allowing for the difference so yeah there's some pretty freaky stuff going on there and those uh, those animals are a lot more in tune with that stuff than we are so it's it's well worth paying a bit of attention to.
0: Yeah. So, the, the thing with the barra is that, do you believe, because instinctively as a species they feed on the tide change because that's the best time to feed, but then because that's within them as a species then then just randomly trigger to do that in the dam based on the fact that they've learnt over however many thousands of years that yep. that's the best time to feed because the tide, that's obviously the feeding time when the, the tide changes and it's the best time to eat.
1: Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure that's what it is. It's yep. just an instinctual thing printed on their, on their genes or whatever. And uh, yeah, they just uh, they just do it with freshwater
0: freshwater barra, as a species. Before we were here, they were all able to be connected to the salt somehow, weren't they? And the reason they're in the fresh is because we put them there.
1: That's right. Although you know, up north they used to get up into. Uh, inland lagoons and things and sometimes get landlocked for five six years at a time if there wasn't a big wet season and they were unable to get out so that would be the closest equivalent to yep. to stocked ones in the dams but basically they all needed just like bass they needed access to the tidal water to complete their life cycle and spawn or whatever so there were no purely freshwater ones like the ones that we've introduced into the dams
0: yeah so in regards to the moon you've got tidal changes you've got light changes but then you've got what you believe and what I am sort of gathering from what you said is a way in which somehow the fish can feel the gravitational pull or the, t- the species can feel the gravitational pull. But as in the correlation, as into what the correlation is between the gravity and that species, obviously you've talked about um, the oysters, we're not too sure how that changes from species to species or how that might affect a barra or, you know, how that affects a cod or that's the bit where it's a bit. That's right. I mean, apart from
1: the the obvious things like you talked about where if you've got a full moon at night and on a cloudless night, there's going to be heaps of light and the fish are able to feed. And therefore they tend not to be hungry, especially in the morning because they've been feeding all night and you often don't get a bite period until the afternoon. Those sort of things are fairly obvious. But what about when it's a completely clouded overnight and you still get a you still get a bite period when the when the moon rises even though you can't see the moon and neither can the fish and it hasn't yeah hasn't raised the light level that's where it gets a bit interesting <laughs>
0: yeah interesting topic and i reckon that in the very last day i do my final podcast i'm sure that'll still be a topic of discussion <laughs> yep. i imagine um cool mate um if what what is I'm just curious what is your favourite place to fish environment and fish if we could put you there right now and it would be your your sweet spot and mm. you could do that forever just that obviously the environment is a big part of it so the environment and the species and the fish where would you drop yourself right now
1: Yeah, well I, I'd hate to have to say that it was the only thing that I'd ever do, but if I had to if I had to narrow it down to one it'd be it'd be wading on a tropical sand flat in clear gin clear water with you know golden trevally or permit or any species actually coming up over the edge of the drop off and swimming across that sand flat and me with a an eight weight or a nine weight fly rod in my hand that that's pretty close to heaven for me Sight casting really to stuff i thought you would flats. have picked
0: brim too. Ah, no no <laughs> even <laughs> though you're brim. happy where you are you still yeah put yourself in a different situation yeah
1: and it's so long since i've done that stuff on the flats up north it'd be three or four years now you know but it still holds a place in my heart that um, yeah catching bonefish on the flats in christmas island or golden trevally up on cape york peninsula or chasing permit um, on the flats over in wa that that sort of stuff threadfin salmon barra all those Sight casting to anything. And and so I do the poor man's version of it down here and I chase <laughs> carp. <laughs>
0: Go to and Jack and chase carp in the fun. shallows
1: and it's so much fun. <laughs>
0: yeah. it's fun. Yeah. That's good my, fun. That's my style of sight fishing, the yep. fresh. Cool, mate. Well, that wraps us up. I've got two more really short questions, but I appreciate mm-hmm. your time and I'm sure the listeners do as well. Um, what are your plans for the future? What are, Do you have any more goals in fishing or life? What's your plan Um, for the next decade or two where to for Steve Starling
1: yeah okay well we touched on social media before and and, uh, I guess we sort of got a bit sidetracked because you did ask me whether I thought it was a positive or a negative overall and and I really don't think it matters what I think or what you think or what anyone else thinks it's here to stay it seems to be anyway certainly for the foreseeable future it's going to be all about social media and that's replaced the the print magazines that I grew up with and I got to say I you know old blokes like me are supposed to be really negative about it all but I I actually really love some of the stuff about um, social media you know getting into this Euronym thing I've been able to teach myself so much by getting onto YouTube and watching american and european clips on how to rig for euro and everything you know stuff that would have taken me two years to learn in the past i've been able to cram it in in two or three days by watching youtube clips so one of my goals is to is to get to the point where people are seeing my youtube clips uh, in the same light and really getting something from them. I'm putting a lot more effort into my Starlo Gets Real channel on, on YouTube now, trying to bring out a a new clip every week if I can. Yeah. Um, and just with real practical down to earth fishing tips and just trying to help people catch more fish, trying to recreate that feeling, I guess, that I talked about in the first decade of the two thousands when, we were able to go into a, a town or a city and educate people on soft plastics, and come back a year later and see that they were enjoying their fishing so much more and and catching more fish. I'd like to be able to do that with my Stalo Gets Real channel on YouTube and with Fishatopia.com, our uh, our online portal. That's how I get my jollies is being able to to share a bit of knowledge, share the journey that I'm on and uh, i'm looking forward to doing a heck of a lot more of that in the future and getting um getting positive feedback from the people that i've been able to help get onto their fishing because i think if you get people passionate about their fishing and they're enjoying it more they then become passionate about the uh, the habitats that sustain those fish and about the fish themselves and you can, you can turn them into genuine conservationists because in, in my opinion the real conservationists are the ones that have got a, a vested interest in the, in, in the numbers of fish that are out there and in the habitats that sustain those fish and the more people I can make passionate about their fishing the better shape our fishing will be in in future for my kids and their kids
0: hundred percent that was very well said I like and you're right it, it the only way something's going to grow or get better or be fixed is by the people who actually do it it's the same for people who hunt it's the same like they look after the population of the species they hunt even though they're killing them yep. it still applies it, obviously with the fishing you've got um, these fisheries where we can catch and release but we can also catch and take and we're still looking after the fish so Exactly. I like that. Now, you brought up um, your platform. Can you tell us a little bit more about how it's going? Because I talked to you two and a half years ago, and it was 12 months old, so we're now three and a half years in, and some people might not have heard that episode. So can you tell us how Fishotopia is going, where it's grown to, um, and what it's about for those who don't know?
1: Yeah, because it, it's been through a few changes across that two and a half years. Um, our initial idea was to to make it as subscription driven um, you know have, have most of the info available to our paying subscribers and that's still a really really important part of the overall picture we have the inner circle which is uh, behind a paywall and you pay you know Six bucks a, a month or, or sixty dollars a year uh, to be a member of Stalo's Inner Circle, and you do get direct access to me and to a fair bit of information that's not otherwise available. But we're also putting more and more out into the into the free domain as well, particularly after it's been on the Inner Circle for a while. So we're we're opening up more to just anyone that wants to go to fishotopia.com uh, and have a look. We've got more and more information on their area guides and things like that. But it's still we still see it as a funnel, and we hope you know we hope to bring people into the into the fold, and into the inner circle. We've got about seven hundred uh, members at the moment. It's a really nice little society in there. It's almost like a club. Uh, we've got our own social media uh, in there, a thing called the Clubhouse Wall, where where guys and girls can chat without all the. You know, some of the rubbish that you sometimes run into on mainstream social media, you're not going to get flamed and you're not going to have people stealing your spots and stuff. So there's a lot of sharing of information goes on in there. So that's that's a real positive. I don't think it's going to grow enormously bigger than that. If we could get it up to a thousand or so, we'd be really, really happy. But we're not we're not pushing it uh, super hard. I'm doing a lot more um, free stuff now just out in, in YouTube um, just enjoying communicating with people and uh, and getting the message out there and embracing the the social media that is the that has become the new magazines and books that that I grew up with. So it's just nice to still be able to communicate with people. And like I said before, the the speed and immediacy of that communication is just breathtaking these days. So I'm I'm, I'm getting a real buzz out of all that.
0: Nice. That's awesome. And what's the, if people want to find out more, it's fishotopia.com.au? Yeah, uh,
1: yeah or both workcom or .com.au, uh, they'll both get you to Fishotopia. But probably the, and, you know, I've got, uh, I'm getting very close to 30,000 um, uh, fans on my Facebook page now, which is Starlo's Fishotopia. And um, Instagram is also Starlo's Fishotopia. And uh, stalo gets real um, YouTube channel. So between those three platforms, there's plenty of ways to to stay in touch with what I'm what I've been doing. Anyone that's um, thinking about embarking on this euro nymphing journey, I'm doing a whole series of uh, uh, YouTube clips on that as I go along and discover stuff myself and learn things. So I'm sharing that with with people, and they seem to be really enjoying that. So
0: love to see people on there. Awesome. I'm keen to see where that goes um, because it's always good to learn yourself and then share it with others. So awesome stuff, mate. Um, what final question, what is your number one piece of advice for people on either life or fishing? So just pretend <laughs> pretend you got to get rid of everything you've ever created, everything you've written, which is a lot of stuff. What's one message that you could share or one message that you want to be known by?
1: Oh, I think that the biggest message that I could pass on is that you... You never stop learning or you shouldn't stop learning and you shouldn't stop being excited about learning. The people I see who get a little bit bitter and twisted about their fishing or about life in general are the ones who think they've got all the answers and that they did it all when everyone else was you know, long long before anyone else came along and it's all been done and dusted and it's all old hat. I think that's a really sad attitude to have, and it's also not correct. There's just new stuff happening all the time, and we never stop learning, and we need to embrace that.
0: Awesome, mate. Very well said. I appreciate it. Uh, Thanks very much for your time once again, and good luck on whatever's ahead for the future. (laughs) No worries, mate. Tight lines. Thanks, mate. Now, after that, if you feel like you could have listened to that for another two hours, I definitely could have sat and talked to Steve for another two, three, four hours and just fired so many questions his way. The wealth of knowledge is incredible and I know there is so much there. And and even though he has shared so much in his time through so many different pieces of content, there is always more there to discuss. And I like the podcast sort of setting as well because you can get things out of different anglers that you wouldn't normally here. You get to know them a little bit better, understand their, how how they work and them as a person rather than just reading uh, some of the text that they've written in an article or something like that. So, I think it's a really good way to not only connect better with those people that we've followed for so long uh, that we read their content but also to sort of unlock different topics and the discussion can just flow and go in a certain direction where we might come up with something we might not have ever written about. So, that's why I really enjoy this whole entire platform. And I'm really appreciative to have Starlo on again for a second episode. And fingers crossed, hopefully in 12 months' time or later down the track, I can get him back on again and have another discussion because I've got so many more questions I could shoot his way. And like he talked about, always continue to learn. It's a massive part of not only fishing but also life. Just never, ever stop. Continue to learn. Always be an open book and always learn from others. You can see Starler open and honest. He really isn't sure about a specific topic or style of fishing, and he wants to learn more about it, he's open to learning from others. And then when he learns that process and puts a bit of time into it, he will then share that on. And that's what I absolutely love about what he's doing. And I feel exactly the same. I do the exact same thing, learn something, and want to share it with all of you guys. So just take that on board as a piece of advice. If you only remember one thing from this conversation, just remember. Always be open and continue to learn because you'll better yourself as an angler and also as a person. Now, like I talked about, if you guys enjoyed this chat or if there was a part of it that you liked in particular, make sure you tag myself and Starlo on your Instagram stories and let us know the part that you enjoyed the most. Also, make sure you head over to Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and a review and let us know that you are enjoying the podcast. We're going to continue to roll out the episodes through 2022. We have so much exciting stuff happening at social fishing for the next 12 months i am pumped to bring it to you and one in particular i'm working on at the moment all of our members know exactly what i'm working on it's going to be an incredible piece of content to help you guys catch more fish but i will share more information on that in a couple of weeks time but if you are a member, you'll know exactly what i'm talking about anyway guys that is it for episode 60 of the social fishing podcast i'll be back soon My name's Rhys Creed and you've been listening to The Social Fishing Podcast.